0: Stephanie, it was just, that, that was just perfect, the right inflection. I love how you read that passage because it really brought it alive. Um, to me, it's a, it's a sign of the, the power and the inspiration of uh, the Bible that when we, when we pick it up and read it, um, we read about people that sound a lot like us, that even 2,000 years later, despite the, the vast cultural distance that we see ourselves and we see our struggles in the stories that we read. Take, for instance, the disciples' suspicion of outsiders. Doesn't that, doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound very contemporary? Their desire to try and dictate the terms of God's work in the world. And uh, their rather conspicuous spiritual anxiety feels very close to home. Can we not see the highly agitated and rather schizophrenic faith of American Christianity reflected in the disciples' suspicion of this outsider's unauthorized work of mercy? We are taught to consider the morality of those outside the faith, or merely outside of a denomination as lacking and suspect. And at the very same time, we are not all that confident in our own morality and goodness, having been taught over and over, or simply absorbed through osmosis, a a theology of sin that tells us that our chief human characteristic isn't that we are made in the image of God and profoundly loved, but that we are no good, miserable sinners and that God merely tolerates us because of the work of Jesus. Now, these two things, these, how we could say, these outward and these inward suspicions are deeply related And we've seen over and over in Mark how the instinct to sort of circle the theological wagons is tied to our anxiety or the disciples' anxiety about belonging. They're wondering, how can my acceptance be worth anything if we just let anyone in? If we let anyone do the works that Jesus has called us to do, doesn't that undermine our own authority and our own power and our own standing. The disciples, you see, are suspicious of someone that is doing an unmistakably good work and doing it in Jesus' name, while being, according to the disciples at least, an outsider, not part of the right faction. But why would the disciples be concerned at all about someone other than them doing these works of healing, except that it brings their own inability to drive out demons earlier in this chapter into stark relief, and that maybe it raises concerns about their own belonging and value, if Jesus is just going to let anyone do what they're supposed to be doing. The disciples here, with John playing the role that Peter normally plays— The disciples see a guy exercising a demon. That's exorcising, not exercising. These are very different things. They see this guy exercising a demon, but this guy is unknown to them. And he's doing something that they're supposed to be doing, but can't. So they recruit a stern condemnation from Jesus. Well, the condemnation. Comes alright, but I'm not sure that they were expecting who would be condemned. They saw Jesus, and this is the part I loved how Stephanie read it. We we saw someone, Jesus. We saw someone. It sounds like hall monitors who notice a fellow student breaking a rule, and so they go find a teacher to tell. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we told him to stop it. Naturally, obviously, how easy it is for us to assume that the church belongs to us, that the way that we have worshipped, the way that we have believed in one particular tradition should be normative for everyone. Well, Jesus is indignant. Don't stop him, or a more colloquial translation might be, you did what? (laughs) You stopped someone who is healing people in my name? Can you imagine what Jesus was thinking of these boneheaded disciples at the moment? Jesus is interested in healing the world by any means necessary, and he is soon going to the cross, and the laborers are few, so He'll take all the help he can get. Whoever isn't against us is for us, is Jesus' point. The disciples, however, are much more interested in policing the boundaries, in not being upstaged. And in, but instead of warning this unknown healer, Jesus turns to his disciples and tells them, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and were thrown into the sea. Wow. In fact, Jesus goes on to say it would be better to cut off a hand, a foot, or cut out an eye than to go into hell with all of these things attached. Now, Keep in mind here, we need to do a little bit of exegetical work, not to diminish the very serious warning here, but we need to know precisely what the warning is. And hell is a very loaded term. Often it's informed, our definition is informed more by Dante than the Bible. Now there are two words that are translated as hell in our English Bibles, Hades and Gehenna which is admittedly very confusing. There, we have only one word for two related but somewhat different things. Hades is a general word for the realm of the dead, as Sheol is in the Old Testament. But here, Mark uses Gehenna, which is also translated as hell, but is a very different thing from Hades, Gehenna is a literal place. It's a a valley in Jerusalem that contained a perpetually burning trash heap. This was where all of the garbage went and was lit on fire. This place was just such a dump, literally. It was the place of refuge and death that was as inhospitable to life as the bottom of the sea would be for someone with a millstone around their neck. Now, my point here isn't at all to downplay the seriousness of Jesus's warning. There is certainly a component of eschatological judgment, particularly as Mark quotes Isaiah uh, in, in verse 48. But Jesus is talking in very real life, very practical terms, and he's working with the real life fears that his hearers would completely understand and relate to. Millstones being hung around necks, he talks about because drowning would have been a real life concern, a real life fear, especially given how many disciples were fishermen. And for everyone, losing a foot or a hand or an eye would be one of the greatest existential fears because this would be the difference between being able to work and eat instead of beg and starve. And the only difference between those two things was often an injury just like this. What Jesus is saying is that it would be better to be drowned or gruesomely maimed than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now we need to do a little more exegetical work here on this word, because what does this mean? Does causing someone to stumble, does it mean merely someone observing our behavior and choosing to do the same, even though it would be a violation of their conscience? So in other words, our choices give validation or give permission to someone else to make a choice that for them might be compromising. It might be injurious to their faith well underneath the english term stumble or the even more innocuous term offend which might be in one of the biblical translations that you have or you that you've read before, before excuse me underneath this english term for stumble is the is the term scandalizo which is is a more technical term for mark meaning the rejection of the gospel message rejection of Jesus kingdom this is much more you see than indirectly influencing someone else's behavior or your choices somehow validating someone else's sinful choices and besides the you here in this verse you causing someone to stumble is referring to the collection of the disciples that are standing around listening to Jesus this little body of Christ in miniature. He's not talking primarily about one person's moral conduct. So maybe our understanding, the traditional kind of conventional view of what this means is off, but what what does it mean? Well, my first mentor as a pastor used to tell me, don't say, I think in your sermons people want to be confident in what god has to say to them so lean on your training lean on the authority of the office and tell them emphatically don't say i think well this was probably good advice to a young pastor who's learning to preach to people that were that were twice my age but but i think <laughs> i think that oftentimes uh the bible doesn't allow the kind of assertiveness where we can always say in every situation, this is the Word of God. This is what this means in all times and all places. Sometimes it's it's not only healthy, but it's necessary to say, I think. And this is a difficult, it is a very complex passage. So we should probably be a little bit restrained in claiming that we know or I know exactly what circumstances that Mark is envisioning here. What type of sin, choice, or behavior would cause a little one to stumble? What type of sin or choice or behavior would cause a little one to reject or desert the faith? The stakes, on one hand, are staggeringly high— And yet Mark doesn't provide us with a great deal of detail. What we can be confident here about is, what what I can say definitively and not I think, what we know Jesus is talking about here is the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of our own ability to self-deceive, and the fact that sin not only corrupts corrupts the sinner, but that it has the power to affect others, that we never sin in isolation. We never sin on an island, as it were, but we always sin in community because we exist in a web of human relationships, and somehow the stakes are so high that our sin even has the power to be a diversion or an obstacle to others embracing the way of Jesus, So friends, we should never, never be naive about sin, that it lurks within everyone and that we ignore it to our peril. What kicks off this whole episode, the disciples' statement, he was not following us. We told him to stop because he was not following us peculiar. Who is the us that you're talking about, John? This is the most inappropriate use of the royal we ever. He was not following us, John claims. Instead of Jesus, he was not following you. It is an inappropriate royal we, but it pinpoints for us, if not the exact sin that would jeopardize others embracing Jesus, it does tell us its nature. The nature of the the very dangerous sin that would lead others astray comes in the form of the disciples appointing themselves as the adjudicators of who's in and out, who's part of the us. It comes in the nature of Christians like you and me or churches that seek out to, that seek to control, that seek to confine the work of God either within our own tradition or our own practices or in the way that we see, that we find it difficult to imagine other people being loved by God and belonging into his family. The nature of this sin is Christians, churches that are stingy with the grace of God. The nature of the sin that Mark is talking about is those of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus, but who busy ourselves shoring up our own value and worth rather than committing ourselves to Jesus' urgent mission. Now, if that's the problem, what is the solution the solution isn't first to stop the behavior but to understand and to acknowledge the sin underneath it the sin underneath the sin if you will which is our lack of our lack of belief in the basic goodness of god and his orientation of mercy toward us our lack of confidence in his boundless forgiveness, that we think allowing others not like us to belong dilutes our own belonging, that we are not convinced that we are recipients of forgiveness and kindness that are in no way owed to us. These things are the sins that lie beneath the behavioral sin that we need to acknowledge These are the things that jeopardize our own journey and by extension jeopardize the journey of others and the potential that they would embrace the way of Jesus. For if they look upon a church, they look upon a person who is so stingy with the grace of God, who erects boundaries and walls rather than extending welcome. Why? Why would they want to be a part of that? Why would, they want, why would they think that Jesus has anything to offer them than any other leader would offer them? How easy is it, friends, to spot the sin in others lives in others' lives, while overlooking the power of sin in our own. Little ones don't do well in environments like this. Little ones don't thrive in environments of suspicion, in environments where the church walls off the gospel from the world and says, in order to receive it, you have to be like us. Not only, friends, should we welcome those who are doing the works of justice and goodness and reconciliation, even if they're not in the tribe, we should at the same time be deeply suspect of our instinct to tighten the boundaries and to rein in the extension of God's grace. And we should be able to recognize and to acknowledge that just as good can come from the outside, that betrayal and pride and destructive hubris can come from the inside. That we, that we, are profoundly infected by a sin nature that takes radical action to deal with. That we undermine the power of sin only by acknowledging it, only by acknowledging the bad news of the gospel that we're not all that we're cracked up to be, that we're not all that we say we are, that we're not all that we pretend to be, that we acknowledge first The bad news of the good news that says that we are lost, lost without grace, that we often feel alone and unworthy, that we are the worst of sinners and of all people in need of mercy. The bad news, you see, of the gospel that we are sinners in need of a Savior is the good news that ignites our restoration and protects protects others from us. The gospel says, as Melville says in Moby Dick, heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly in need of mending. The gospel says that God sends his son to the cross to rescue us and it is not those who sin who miss out but those who fail to acknowledge it acknowledging it however may feel like losing an eye or a foot or a hand or a limb or life itself because it is losing the life that we have lived up to the point of salvation and it is it is losing a life that is intent on serving itself and preserving itself and guarding the boundaries of its own inclusion. But this pain in the indication that we are acknowledging and asking God to move in our lives, this is the, the pain is the indication that the medicine is working. Let's pray that we would all receive the medicine of the gospel as we come to receive uh, communion together. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that the subversive gospel of Mark would get into our lives, into our souls, into our minds, into the way that we go about living and the choices that we make, that we would see the gospel that you brought to us through your son, Jesus, that turns everything upside down. It turns our politics, our economics upside down. It turns our perspectives on those who are different from us upside down. It turns our assumptions about why we are included upside down, that we were brought in not because of our own innate worth to the kingdom or some value or some talent that we had that was usable to you and needful for your kingdom work, but we got in just as everyone through sheer grace through the work of Jesus on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. And we come hoping to feed upon that truth as we confess our faith and as we partake of communion together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.